0: Well, the government shutdown is over. We're all relieved. Life goes back to normal. The reality is that for most of us, life didn't change that much. A number of folks, I know of some folks in our congregation, I'm sure you know of a lot of folks, for whom their life was impacted especially those who are federal workers. But life going on as usual, it's an interesting thought. According to Richard Fisher, who is the president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, these are the words that he said the day after the government reopened. He said that as long as inflationary expectations are held at bay we can fully open the monetary throttle in an effort to deliver on the mandate that Congress gave us to help achieve full employment. But it is for naught, as long as the fiscal authorities are slamming on the brakes and leaving everyone in the dark as to how they will cure the fiscal mess they have wrought. Kicking the can down the road for a few months will not solve the pathology of fiscal misfeasance that undermines our economy and threatens our future. Interesting words. What strikes me is that, again, for, for myself, for probably a good number of us, during the government shutdown, everything seemed to go on as normal, at least in my little world. I was not impacted. This is not a political commentary, I promise. You know, I don't believe that Sunday morning worship is a place for any kind of political commentary. The reason that I bring it up is because it is such an excellent example of the situation in Sardis. The letter to the church of Sardis, which is where we're going this morning in Revelation chapter 3. On the surface, everything seems fine. But yet something is desperately wrong, according to Jesus. Let's not forget that even though this letter that we are reading was written to a certain church, certain geography, certain period of time, what we have said many times is that the message to these individual churches is a message to all of the churches, regardless of where they might be in geography or in time. So just as the letter to Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira have held messages for us as God's people, so does the church and the message to that church in Sardis. We've seen these words a number of times. Don, can we put, put these words up that we have looked at? Every Sunday, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's say it together. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, take your hands, put them right up here. You feel these things on the side of your head? <laughs> ears, we have them. We have years, and so we are going to hear what the Spirit says. That's what we have been after every week. Hearing what the Spirit says, seeking to apply what the Spirit is saying to His people in these letters, because those who belong to God, and forgive me if this seems obvious, but those who belong to God and who have given themselves to following after Jesus are not going to be, or at least shouldn't be, casual about what he says. Would you agree? Yeah? I mean, after all, it is, it is his church. He's the head, he's the Lord. Seems that we probably ought to pay attention to what he has to say. It just seems like a good idea. Remembering the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Remember the story of the wise man who built his house on the rock? The not-so-wise man who built his house on the sand? Jesus told that story immediately after asking that question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And his point was that to hear his words, to pay attention to his teaching and yet not obey them and apply them put them practice in our lives it's like building a house on the sand when the storm comes the house which is a euphemism there for one's life is wrecked to not pay attention to the words of jesus is to wreck our lives so let's stand and let's read Carefully together. The words of Jesus to the church in Sardis. Here we go. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Dressed in white, for they are worthy. Those who are victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out their names from the book of life, but will acknowledge their names before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Just a little historical info that that gives us some, some hints to some of the, the, the words and the language that is used, like the other churches that we have looked at. Sardis was located in Asia Minor, which is today modern Turkey. The, the city of Sardis was only about 30 miles from the last church, Thyatira. They're all in kind of a little circle there. In uh, Southern Turkey, it was on the trade routes from the Aegean islands, and so it was a fairly prosperous city. It was a strategic city militarily. The uh, historians tell us that there was an acropolis there, still is there, eight hundred feet high, and the walls were just vertical cliffs. Uh, historians say that it was it was almost impenetrable. There was twice in the history of the city that it was attacked, and conquered. Attacks were frequent, but only twice. Supposedly, both of the successful attacks came as a surprise when the opposing army discovered the secret entrance into the city. The Persians did that in the 6th century. The Romans did that 200 years after that. So imagine that you're a believer... And you're living in this city that is noted for its security. It has only been conquered twice in its known history. You're a member of the church in Sardis, and you hear Jesus warning that if things do not change, he's going to come like a thief. And they wouldn't know when that was going to be. Significant words. Because the armies that had conquered the city only twice had come up the secret path in quiet when it was dark, found their way into the city and proceeded to conquer it. Jesus is saying to the believers, if you don't change things, I'm going to come on you like a thief. And I'm going to make some changes. Again, images of Jesus that we don't particularly appreciate, and yet one that we need to to see and to understand. There's another piece of history and, and geography that is interesting about Sardis that about seven miles outside of the city, there was a huge necropolis. We would call it a cemetery. It was known as the city of the dead. It was ginormous. It's a place where kings and other royalty had been buried for centuries. Today it is known as Bintepe, which means a thousand hills. From the site where Sardis was, you could look and see hundreds of these large burial mounds dotting the landscape. It's an important image. there is the city of Sardis receiving this letter, the church in Sardis receiving this letter from Jesus, full of life and activity, and not far away is the city of the dead. And with that image, they hear Jesus say to his church, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive and vital and industrious, but you are dead. Reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Don, let's put those words up there. Right after those words, we snuck in the neighbor question. What do you think Jesus meant by those words? He doesn't tell us. So you just have to speculate a little bit. What do you think Jesus meant you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Turn to someone nearby. Talk about that for just a couple minutes. See what they think. Okay, what do you think? Reputation for being alive. Jesus says you're dead. Okay. So you think that there are undoubtedly people that are part of that church that perhaps don't have the life of Christ in them right. as a result I've, of the Spirit? I've seen it. Okay. No, you've seen that? Okay, okay, good. What else? Playing church. Ooh, that's a little caustic, Kenny. <laughs> it's Jackie's fault. <laughs> no. <laughs> Playing church, okay. Going through some motions. Sure, what else? You don't want to answer this one, do you? Being kind of quiet. I think, I think one, of the, one of the clues that we have here is the use of the word dead. You know, obviously his, his command to, to wake up is not directed to those who are physically dead. At least, I don't think they are. That's the way we tend to think of, of dead. Is, you know, is, is physical death? I have to confess, have you ever seen Princess Bride? Yeah. I think of that movie every time I read this letter. Miracle Max. Oh, I've seen worse. <laughs> I think... I, I no, nah, I'm not even going there. Forget I even mentioned that. The word is necros. Remember I told you there's, there's a necropolis seven miles away. Paulus being city, necro being dead. It's the city of the dead. The word necros is used metaphorically throughout the New Testament. You remember the story of the father and his prodigal son. What did he announce to everyone? This son of mine was, and now he is alive. Jesus challenged people to follow him with the words, let the dead bury the dead. So it's often used metaphorically. But when the same Greek word is applied to. Inanimate things, inanimate objects. Dead can mean poor quality, useless. The writer of Hebrews, for example, speaks of a person's spiritual works, the things that they are doing in order to get to God, to please God, prior to life in Christ, prior to regeneration and salvation, given to them by the Spirit of God, he refers to those works as dead. One that most of us probably know pretty well comes from James 2. Faith without works is... Okay. So, same word, but used with inanimate objects, it means of poor quality or useless. And I think... That is the use of the word here as Jesus is talking about the the deeds of these people and what they're doing. Their deeds are of no use. They are of poor quality. Just brainstorm with me for a minute. What do we do that is important to Jesus? Ah, we love one another. That seemed to be pretty high on his list of priorities. Perhaps even higher than that one might be what, Linda? Or someone? Loving him. Oh, I'm reminded of a story that he told. You know, in response to what's the greatest commandment. He said, love God with everything that you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor in the same way. So what is it that's important to Jesus? I would say it this way. It's the values of the kingdom of God. Specifically, the values of the kingdom of His Father. How often, over the years, we have looked at Jesus and His relationship to His Father and we have seen that it was who His Father was and how his father lived, and the essence of being in relationship with his father that was the passion of Jesus' life. told people, I don't do anything and I don't say anything unless I hear it, see it, from my father. Wow. So it seems to me that we can deduce from the idea of of deadness and what is useless or of poor quality, those things that are of value to Jesus are those things that have to do with the the values of the kingdom. And I think we've hit on two of the most important ones, love and passion for God, love and passion for people. The deeds are of poor quality. and, And... the one who holds their lives in his hand, the one who holds the seven spirits of God, or as we've seen, probably the sevenfold spirit, the one who who sends the presence of the spirit into the life of his church. As the one who holds the life and the vitality of the church in his hand, they need to be concerned that he is not at all satisfied with their deeds. But here's the truth. The one whose church that they belong to, the one whose church that we belong to or are a part of, has every right to demand of us exactly what he wants. And since it is his reputation that is at stake through the words and the actions of the church, it shouldn't surprise us that he sets this standard that he is interested in works, in deeds that display the values of the kingdom and bring attention to him and attention to his father. And I can't shake the sense, and this is speculation on my part, that what Jesus is ultimately concerned about in the church of Sardis is that that they are content to just go through some of the outward motions of the church. Maybe that's the the playing church. Kenny, they're they're interested and content to just go through these outward motions, things that religious people do. They participate in church-like activities, giving the appearance of life, but in terms of any value to the kingdom, they are useless. They are dead. I think one of the the reasons that, that... that I am biased towards this is because of the reward that Jesus speaks of for those who are faithful. You heard him say, for, for those who have not soiled their clothing, they will walk with me. They will have fellowship with Jesus. It's interesting, one of the other things about Sardis that historians tell us is that they were known for a very large and vital wool industry. And it would have been frowned upon for citizens in the city of Sardis to walk around in public with soiled woolen garments. You know, get some new clothes, man. This is, this is what we do here. We have nice clothes. We have nice woolen garments. It was a blatant disrespect of one's citizenship and for what the city was known for. And I would suggest to you, Just saying, that the people of God show disrespect for the righteousness of Christ with which we have been clothed when we wallow around in the values of the culture in which we live. We really do. (laughs) People of God show disrespect for the clothing of Christ's righteousness of which we have been clothed we have been wrapped in his righteousness is the way that, that, that some people put it. I like the image. We show blatant disrespect for that when we wallow around in the values of the culture in which we live. Mm, sort of. <laughs> in a spiritual way. My mother used to say that. <laughs> Exactly. The inward life. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I would go with that, John. I'm suspicious that the believers... (laughs) I think the believers in Sardis maybe had found a way to live in the pagan culture that allowed them to be comfortable and did not require much sacrifice or much pain. You know, we've seen persecution as a part of of most of the churches that we have looked at so far. Fierce persecution. Well, this church still existed and functioned in the same time frame, uh, and yet there's there's no mention of that. One commentator says it this way. He says, It may be that they had so made peace with the surrounding society that the offense of the cross had ceased and they were no longer in jeopardy of life or vulnerable to suffering. Yesterday I heard a story from a friend who personally knows a man who carries a wooden cross up and down the 16th Street Mall, downtown Denver, on Friday nights. And what's interesting is that he receives all kinds of abuse, all kinds of hatred and mean-spirited comments. This individual rarely hears any word of blessing or encouragement. He's confronted by angry people. He's ridiculed. His life has even been threatened. Now, you can agree or disagree with what he's doing. You may like or dislike, but the fact is, he's confronted with so much constant hatred more than any other emotion, I think, is a witness to the biblical truth that the cross is a source of offense, always. It's always a source of offense. He could walk up and down that mall four miles every Friday night is what he does. He could be carrying a fishing pole on his shoulder or a golf bag and nobody would say a thing. But he carries a cross and he receives all kinds of hatred. I don't know. Jesus speaks of the reward for those who are faithful to him as walking with him, language for intimacy and fellowship, and they are dressed in white. Throughout the entire book of Revelation, white garments are symbolic of the righteousness, victory, and glory of God. Throughout the history of the church, many of the martyrs requested to be clothed in white Symbolic of the righteousness of Christ as they ended their life for his glory on this earth. And the other piece of the reward that John talks about is that their names are never erased from the book of life. The two rewards, I think, are essentially one and the same thing. Walking with Christ, being with God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, intimacy, and wrapped in his glory, that is to have your name in the book of life. I think the emphasis is there because it's one of permanence. Those who are faithful to the end, those who do not compromise, those who recognize that the culture in which they live sees the cross as an offense. And who among us wants to suffer for Jesus? You know, Sign me up? I mean, there's something about suffering that is very difficult to get our minds around. And so I think it's very reasonable that Jesus is looking at a church filled with people who say that they love Him, going through actions that would have been assigned to religious people in the day, but somehow the cultural pressure that existed around them had move them away from a focus upon Christ, from a focus upon the values of the kingdom, and from the necessity of suffering for Jesus, if that's what it comes to. So the Lord of the church, the one in Sardis and at Applewood, calls the individuals that constitute the church to wake up. Another translation, be watchful. And because it's in the present tense, it's constant. It's a constant sense of watchfulness and being alert. I think it's a call, my friends, to recognize the serious nature and mission of the church in the world. We are a part of something so important. And there is no place for casualness. There is no place for apathy because the reputation of God is at stake. When we sacrifice the values of the kingdom and we are not interested in living in obedience to those values, then we have made the church about us and the church is not about us. Jesus didn't intend that and he still doesn't want that. Reputation of God is at stake. Do you ever think of that? Do I ever think of that? People that know we're followers of Christ take their initial and maybe lasting impressions of Him from watching and listening to our lives. That doesn't mean that we're perfect people. What it means is they observe in us over the long haul as they watch our lives values of the kingdom of God being lived out. Values of the kingdom of God shaping our thinking and our actions and our decisions and the way that we treat people. Values of the kingdom of God. So wake up, says Jesus, recognize that this is no game. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, kick it into gear and get serious about what it means to follow Him and to live for Him. And to remember that following after Him will lead us into conflict with the godless value system of our culture. And I would say as a word of caution, I would say that getting serious is not all about doing more for Him. We fall into that trap. Oh man, I gotta pray more. I gotta read my Bible more. I gotta go to church more faithfully. Yada, yada, yada. it's, It's not about doing things for Jesus that make us feel better about doing the things that we're doing. It's about surrender. It is about surrender to Christ. It is about surrender to Him and recognizing that in response to His amazing grace in our lives, we give ourselves, that's the Romans 12 passage that we know well, in view of God's mercy. Give yourselves, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. It's an opening of our lives to the work of His Spirit to do whatever He wants with us. We embrace kingdom values. And I think, you know my bias, that some of the best kingdom values you're going to find are in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Sermon on the Mount. It is the Magna Carta of the Christian life. You want to know what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. You give attention to what Jesus has said. Those are just suggestions. They're not nice ideas. And people have made the mistake over the ages of saying this is how governments should work. Governments will never work that way. It's how individuals live their lives in the country in which they find themselves regardless of what their government looks like. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's about a people who are passionately pursuing peace. It is about people who pray for their enemies. It's about people who give their stuff away to those who need it and ask for it and don't deserve it. This is stupid stuff. It doesn't make any sense. It's a kingdom of God values. The people in the church of Sardis had forgotten about that. So, where do we start in the waking up process? Just quickly, let me remind you of the four directives that Jesus gives to the Christians in Sardis. First, he says, strengthen the things that remain. I really believe that this is an honest, a call to to honest assessment. It's maybe the hardest piece. Where is my heart in terms of my surrender to Christ? My trust in Him? My confidence that He is all I need in life? Here's the thing. I'd rather do an assessment of your life And then we can talk about where you're falling short. I don't want to talk about my life and where the Spirit convicts me of falling short, but I think that's what it means to strengthen the things that remain. Look inside and open yourself to the Spirit saying, What about this? What about that? I think every one of us ought to make time at the end of each day and I don't do this so just know I'm a hypocrite to open ourselves to the teaching and the counsel of the Spirit of God regarding our surrender to Christ. That's the Spirit's role. He's a teacher and He's a counselor. Spirit of the living God, you who have given me life and indwell me. How did I do today in living out the values of the kingdom for your glory and your praise and then just shut up and listen? And what do you hear? starts with strengthening the things that remain on a self-assessment. Second thing Jesus said, remember what you have received and heard. My friends, this is the gospel. This is the glorious truth that a holy God loves lost and broken and rebellious people and he redeems them for himself and he does one better than that. He makes them a part of his family. And I'm suspicious that many of us get way too casual and comfortable with that truth. Wow. I've heard it said that we're going to be surprised someday at the people that we see in heaven. Doesn't that work both ways? <laughs> yeah. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is amazing. Jesus says, remember what you've received And heard, remember the amazing truth of God's grace and how it has touched and changed your lives and opened up the door for a life with God and an eternity with Him. The third exhortation is obey it. Obey what? It's obey what you've received and heard. Again, this is a call to surrender. To obey the commands of Christ so that we live out the values of the kingdom of God in a culture that desperately, desperately needs to see it. And again, at the risk of being obnoxious, which you know I am anyway, Jesus is not nearly as concerned about our Bible reading and our prayer lives and our witnessing and our church attendance. Because anybody can do those things. People who aren't indwelled by the Spirit of God do those things. But people who are indwelled by the Spirit of God, they do things like live out the values of the kingdom. And those who aren't indwelled by the Spirit of God can't do that. And they see that and they go, wow, that's different. Praise team, come on up and I'll, I'll share the fourth as you come. The last one, it's a word that we often hear and probably not a word that we're real crazy about. Jesus says, repent. This is a no excuses attitude toward our failures. And let's be honest, we fail all the time to live out the kingdom values and to be faithful to our Lord. Repentance gives us a chance to be honest and to to find His love and His forgiveness that is so abundantly ready for us. And I think repentance also bridges a gap between two extremes. I've experienced these and my guess is maybe you have too. On one side, we beat ourselves up. Oh, I'm such a miserable failure. I screwed up again. How can God love me? I don't know how he can love you. But he does. In the same way that I don't know how he loves me. But he does because that's who he is. Don't go to the extreme of beating yourself up. Don't go to the other extreme either, which is minimizing the sin and the damage that it causes. The temptation, I think, after we've failed enough is to think, well... (laughs) I, you know, it's, it's just not that bad. I, I can live with it. I'm acting hateful toward that person I know, but, but it's not as bad as they're acting towards me. That's not a kingdom value. And that's swinging to an extreme that doesn't allow for the Spirit of God to bring the love and the forgiveness and the reminder of God's grace into our repentance. Close with this story that happened 12 years ago. Winnipeg, Manitoba newspaper reported that Jim Sulkers, he was a 53-year-old retired municipal worker, climbed into his bed and he pulled the covers up and he died. And nearly two years later, on August 25, 2004, police who had been called by concerned relatives entered the apartment and found his body in a mummified state. Everything else in his tidy one-bedroom apartment was intact, although the food in the fridge was spoiled and his wall calendar was two years out of date. But his death went undiscovered for several reasons. He was reclusive, he was estranged from family members, he had a medical condition that prevented his body from decomposing and emitting odors. In addition, his automatic banking deposited his disability pension and withdrew utilities and other expenses as they came due. This guy was dead for a long time and nobody knew it. My brothers and sisters, what a statement for the body of Christ and the life that we live together. As we open ourselves up to the probing, searching work of God's spirit in our lives, he reveals those things that bring death so that we don't burden with those that are a part of the body with finding us two years down the road, been dead for a long time, hadn't been life in him for a long time. Hasn't been any vitality in her for a long time. Brothers and sisters, it's the work of God's people living this together, shining the spotlight inside and allowing the Spirit to do the work so that we can begin to live the values with one another and before others and bringing great life and refreshment to all those.